Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And as you probably know, or you should know, University Press Week is coming up. It starts on November 8th. And every year on the NBN, we have an event. We do an interview with the president of the Association of University Presses. And this year, we uh, have Lisa Bayer on the show, and she is the director of the University of Georgia Press and is also the president of the Association of University Presses. So we're very pleased to have her on, and we'll be talking about university presses and what they do and uh, how the NBN works with them and related matters. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Marshall. Um, So as I said, University Press Week starts on November 8th. Um, Before we turn to you directly, can you tell us a little bit about University Press Week? Sure. So this is our 10th anniversary. University Press Week was founded in 2012, which coincidentally was the year I became a became director at Georgia. So it's my 10th anniversary as well. But University Press Week um, was established as a specific time each year to highlight the work and the values and the contributions of university presses to, um, you know, to knowledge, to um, intellectual freedom, to uh, basically our participation in and, and as one of the drivers of uh, scholarly publishing and scholarly work work on a global basis. And, uh, you know, it's really taken off. The entire association is focused on it. And we love working with partners like the New Books Network each year to highlight uh, our place in the Knowledge Society. Well, to state the obvious, we could not do what we do without you. So your uh, extraordinarily valuable work is very important to us and all of our listeners who number 750,000 a month now. So uh, we are very glad to be in partnership with you. The, The theme this year is, I believe, Keep Up, right? That's right. And could you talk a little bit about that theme? Yes. Hashtag keep up. Um, So the theme this year has to do with the ways, the many ways that university presses have evolved in the 10 years, especially since the founding or establishment of University Press Week. But certainly university presses, like any uh, vibrant, responsive uh, community that continues to be, you know, contributive and um, uh, robust, university presses have evolved throughout their entire existence, you know, I think since what? Johns Hopkins or Cornell was founded. Well, I guess we can go back to Cambridge and Oxford as well. But um, keeping up over the past 10 years has meant many things, but some of the ways in which university presses have kept up is by diversifying uh, the ways that we deliver scholarship, the ways that we partner with scholars and and all sorts of authors to... um, to publish work in all sorts of ways um, that asks good questions and provides, you know, great answers in the way of new learning. And some of those ways are, at well, podcasts, hello, um, you know, multimedia, uh, quote, books that appear in online platforms, uh, graphic graphic delivery you know at least three university presses i actually there are many more are doing scholarship in the form of graphic um not gra- well not graphic novels but graphic history and graphic presentation things like exploring open access books and certainly journals. I don't want to leave journals out because university presses are you know one of the foremost uh, publishers of nonprofit journals, I will add, we are not part of the big bad, um, the big bad force that's causing academic libraries to feel all the pain. But, you know, we do things like at Georgia, 
12 or 13 years ago, we were a founding partner and continue to publish the New Georgia Encyclopedia, which is the first born digital online peer-reviewed state encyclopedia used by eighth graders throughout the state of Georgia and um, people beyond. So university presses are always in the mix in terms of looking for new ways to deliver and be responsive to the needs of our readers and our, uh, quote, users, to use a term from the digital world. And, uh, you know, we've not only kept up, I would say we've stayed ahead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you have suggested a lot of topics and ways we can go in this discussion. Um, I I wanted to begin with perhaps a a question about open access, because I, I don't think a lot of people understand what it is. I mean, one of the things I know as somebody who now runs a business is that you have to cover your costs in order to continue doing what you're going to do. People generally don't work for free, especially highly trained, intelligent people. So open access is a, is a bit confusing in this way. Can you talk about the open access environment, what it is, and how university presses use it or don't use it, and how kind of it fits into the mix of scholarly publishing? Correct. Yes, I can within my capacity as a, you know, university press publisher in the U.S. who does only books. We only do books at Georgia. Of course, the open access um, model first came to to be in um, in Europe with regard to journals, to scholarly journals. So, you know, that's the model. It it has made much more inroads with journals than with monographs. And I just want to clarify that information is not free. It must be, the costs must be covered, whether it's a journal article or a scholarly monograph or any other kind of publication. Or a podcast. Um, Or a podcast. Thank you very much. Yes. So, or a website. But when, um, when, when university press folks, when the AU presses talks about open access, I want to be really careful here to clarify that it's just one of many models. It is not a model that is universally accepted even or embraced by uh, by our membership. However, we know that, you know, uh, two thirds of, of the respondents to a survey that our open access task force did in 2020, right before the massive shutdown shows that, you know, many, 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 I would say the majority of university presses in the AU presses are doing some sort of open access. But All of those models include cost coverage, cost recovery. There are many, many, you know, many institutions provide subventions to their uh, faculty to be used, you know, perhaps toward open access publishing. At Georgia, uh, we have scholars who are interested in their books being available open. And so our you know, our funding requirement is $5,000. And we'll still do the book as a print book. We'll still, we might even still sell it on Kindle because that's a different market, but we can also use those funds to make monographs available, widely available through, for instance, books at JSTOR and Project Muse and EBSCO. And, and I, I'm going on too long, but I want no, to put no, I want to put in a strong um, word of support for um, Manifold Scholarship, which is an uh, open source publishing platform developed by the University of Minnesota Press in conjunction with several other partners, a coding group, CUNY um, Graduate School, funded by. The Mellon Foundation, thank goodness. But Manifold, if you haven't checked it out, and I suspect that you have, allows publishers um, 
to publish their books in open an open platform online but it's so very cool because it also for instance if you were working on a new book in Russian history and you wanted to get feedback from a select group of your peers experts in the in the field you could use manifold scholar the platform to share drafts, chapter drafts, you know, it would be a closed circuit. You could get feedback. You it's, it's, you can annotate it. You can highlight, you can form a reading group. You could, if you were teaching a class, you could share a book in that way for class discussion. Um, it also allows for multimedia and other sorts of ancillary um, content. So Manifold is a platform that Georgia uses along with many, many, many other publishers, not just university presses, but universities as well, um, to share information. It looks like a, it, it's a very cool, very intuitive platform. Um, and so I'm, I'm off the topic of open access because manifold allows you you don't have to uh you don't have to have things be open access you can actually charge for them in manifold too but we're using it for some open access projects and it's just one other way that the university press world has been responsive again as i see it responsive and evolved and kept up kept up that's right um i think one of the things that many people don't understand about open access and publishing in general is that essentially we're all on the same team and working toward the same goal. And that is to provide this wisdom and knowledge and data to the widest possible group of people in a sustainable way. The word sustainable is very important because we, the New Books Network, the University Presses, have to find a way to cover our costs so we can continue to do this. And there are different ways to get there. There are a lot of different business models involved. Open access is one of them. But they all are business models because uh, what uh, goes out has to be covered by what comes in. And this is a certifiably hard problem. That's right. That's exactly right. There are a lot of really smart people working on this and who devoted their lives to this mission, which is the dissemination of knowledge and wisdom and data, trying to find the best way to do it. And I know that, you know, with the New Books Network, this is something that we ran into years ago when it was was smaller and it wasn't covering its costs and it was not sustainable. And I, as the founder and the person that was running it had to find a way to continue doing what we do. Uh, and that, that was hard. It, it, was, it was a really difficult process. Um, we have, in a manner, solved that problem provisionally. We're open to other options. But, you know, I'm happy to say that in the case of the University of Georgia Press and the New Books Network, we're sustainable. We can continue to do this good work. Uh, and this is even true, I think, of I've talked to a lot of what you might call for-profit publishers, and they share this mission too. They are really generally interested in the dissemination of this work. Um, and they're not exactly bad guys. They, uh, although, <laughs> well, they're, they're not exactly bad guys. They're, they're really working in a different way to do the same thing. Um, and it's a good thing because, you know, we're kind of making our democracy vibrant and knowledgeable. Do I sound, that's, I'm sorry, I just, uh, I just ventured into platitude land. <laughs> no, I like it. I like platitude land, especially before lunch, you know, yeah. on a weekday. I, no, no, we are all part of the same um, network, as it were, delivering knowledge, you know, peer-reviewed. Um, d- can't forget to mention that, which does distinguish scholarly publishers um, from other sorts and kind of is our is our brand, right? Um, but when you say that, we are, you know, we, we have to sustain, figure out ways to sustain our work. That's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I just got out of an AU Press's board of directors meeting last week, and I'm kind of excited to say that, you know, we're at our highest level of membership ever. We have 159 member presses, um, 
18 of them outside North America, 30 outside of the U.S., um, but that's the, the highest number that we've ever had. And um, we've seen, you know, some new university presses established also over the past 10 years um, that I can remember. But I want to say something else about sustainability my colleagues, Charles Watkinson at the University of Michigan Press and Melissa Pitts at the University of British Columbia Press published a really interesting um, opinion piece in Insi- Inside I- Higher Ed-, Ed earlier this year called Reimagining Humanities Infrastructure, in which they make a very strong case for infrastructure to support the work that we do and the work that our like-minded colleagues do. Um, in the humanities. But, and I knew this, but it strikes me every time. In the United States and Canada, fewer than 130 university presses support more than 4,000 degree granting institutions. In other words, if you, as you know, if you're in a tenure track, you need to publish, you want to publish, you want to share your scholarship with the world. And, um, you know, they're 3% of the institutions in uh, the U.S. and Canada provide uh, publishers, support university press publishers to do that work. That's just one way to look at it, but it's it's certainly one way to look at the great needs in building up um, the networks that support us. I, I think this is another thing people don't understand too, is that essentially, and um, people differ on how one should talk about this, but the university presses play a role as uh, providing cr- their credentialing devices. This is uncompensated. <laughs> this is not. This is not in uh, your remit. You you are not a a credentialing service. That's not what you're paid for. Um, you're paid to disseminate knowledge. Nonetheless, thousands of institutions benefit from all of the things that you do in order to certify that their teachers and professors and lecturers have the credentials that they need in order to continue to do what they do. So this is like a free public service that the university press has survived. It kind of is. And and especially, you know, as we see the continued long, slow slide of academic libraries, uh, collections budgets, you know, I mean, this year with the pandemic coming out of it, we've seen even more uh, devastation wreaked upon uh, monographs, collections budgets at, at university uh, libraries, it, especially as that piece continues to erode. Um, you know, I don't know what the answer is. I think part of the answer is that more, many, 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 many more of those 4,000 institutions um, provide support to their faculty and their um you know, scholar authors who are working with the university presses in the way of perhaps, um, you know, subventions. I mean, we ask every author whose book we put, whose book is approved by our faculty editorial board, we ask for, a, you know, does your institution provide any support for your publication, a publication fund? And it's surprising some it's somewhat surprising how many do have small funds, um, but everyone should. Frankly, everyone should. Yeah, I, I I agree with you because this is you know going to put my business person cap on this this accounting and cost is unaccounted for. Correct. It is, and so we we have the phenomenon of, and again you can debate the terminology, but free riders. Absolutely. I, I try in my life. I try not to be a free rider. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. If if you don't have a publication fund, then then you know buy university press books and and subscribe to journals. For goodness' sake, um, it's uh, you know, and and that's why that's why university press directors are on the whole entrepreneurial. We have to be, and not and that's not a bad thing. I mean, 
I feel as if I'm constantly looking at the title mix. And, um, you know, we have three areas in which we publish at Georgia, part of our um, you know, part of our about us statement that you find on our website. And those three areas are first and foremost, um, scholarship. That's our, our primary core of our mission and the reason that we exist and, you know, are part of a university focused on um, excellence in research and knowledge. And, but then also we're a land, part of a land and sea grant university. So we have a commitment to the citizens of Georgia to publish books, in our case books, that speak to their experience in, in, <clears throat> in the state's history, culture, literature, natural history, uh, you know, from the mountains in the north to the coast, uh, to South Georgia, where, um, you know, peanuts and pecans uh, feed the world. Um, we, we have a strong commitment. So our regional list is very strong, as it is at many other uh university presses. And then the third area, of course, is digital scholarship. So the New Georgia Encyclopedia, um, our manifold work, and we just did a big NEH-funded project, Humanities Open Book Project, called the Georgia Open History Library, which allowed us to bring back 45 out-of-print titles on the early, early um colony and um, statehood in Georgia. So anyway, uh, and, and, you know, other university presses are doing all sorts of other entrepreneurial things. Um, It's, you know, and so are universities for that matter. You constantly have to think about how you're going to sustain yourself while staying true to your mission. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, here at the New Books Network, I'm constantly thinking about new ways to support what we do. I mean, I, 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 I did this because I wanted to help scholars disseminate what they know. But again, I'm always looking for ways to find it uh, more sustainable. And that, that's not to say to make, you know, my salary larger, but it's just to, to really find a way to float the boat. <laughs> and there are a lot of new ways. Yeah. Let, let me touch on one thing that you said, and that is digital scholarship. I, I think that's, um, I was about to call this naive, but let's go into it anyway. I don't think it's perhaps naive, but people say, well, you know, I print PDFs all the time and I trade them with people. Why don't you just make PDFs out of your books and then just put them on the web? <laughs> <laughs> well, there is such a thing called a web PDF, which we do make available. But, uh, well, I mean, I would say... Um, that my librarian friends would say, and we are part of the UGA library, so I have a lot of librarian friends, they would say that just sticking something on the web doesn't make it discoverable. That's actually one of the big problems with open access uh, projects. There are so many of them from the you know, the established JSTORs and EBSCO and, and Knowledge Unlatched to individual publishers putting things out. You, How do you find it? I mean, we were talking earlier about, you know, the idea of a consolidated email or alert when new books in X subject are available. That would be incredibly useful for scholars in particular fields. But when you have digital projects that very beneficially may be open, how are they findable? And that is a massive challenge. Yeah, I mean, there are kind of two things there is. One, one, and, and I know this as somebody that produces digital projects all day long, it's kind of expensive. <laughs> I won't tell you how much we pay our hosting service to to host and distribute all of our podcasts, but it's a lot of money. Like it's worth it. Uh, they back it all up. They make sure it goes out on the RSS feeds. They make sure that the files have integrity, you know, and they check them and they do all these things that I can't do. It's not cheap. Like those people are serious, and uh, 
they're in a labor market and they need to be compensated. <laughs> and, and so that, that's kind of the first issue. And then the second issue of discoverability, this is what I've learned having worked on the web now with the New Books Network for about 15 years. If you put something on the internet and, and, and just stick it up there, nobody will ever find it. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> Never. I mean, it's funny because sometimes we do some experimenting on the NBN website and I'll say, we're going to put this up on the website and, and people say, well, won't people see it? And I'm like, no, <laughs> nobody Absolutely will ever not. find it. Absolutely not. <laughs> not until I go and promote it, then yeah. they'll find it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you know, not to be old school, uh, and cause I'm not old school, but you know, every time I walk into the stacks, you know, on the other side of the third floor of the UGA main library where we're located and have looked up a book in the online catalog and pull it off the shelf. I'm like, you know, there's a reason why books and print have been the model for so long because we have a system and the system works. You know, the majority of our university presses business is still in print. Students have said they prefer print. Uh, researchers, scholars prefer print until they can't get to it, which is what happened in March of 2020, right? Everybody shut down and, you know, universities shut down and, um, and then we couldn't get to the books. And obviously there's a place, a huge place, a big reason for um, digital scholarship as well. And that's when that's when it really came to the fore. And I think to go back to the discoverability question, you know, um, that's when uh, vendors, aggregators like JSTOR and Muse and EBSCO, uh, when they opened their collections, global usage was off the charts. Um, you know, many, many, you, I'm sure you know this, that those particular trusted library aggregators asked their publishers, including university presses, to open, to asked us to open our content during the great shutdown during 2020. And, you know, many, many publishers did, including Georgia. Um, you know, the very cool uh, graphical map showing uh, usage, um, global usage, especially in the global south. Um, it, it, it underscored the importance of digital scholarship and digital networks and what I would say good, trustworthy systems. Um, and it also underscored the importance of this publishing that university presses do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, you used a word which many people m might not be familiar with, but I think about it every day, and that is aggregators. And all of their work occurs behind the scene, and you don't really appreciate what they do. But just in the case of the New Books Network, how would you find New Books Network podcasts if it were not for the Apple Corporation or the Spotify Corporation or the Stitcher Corporation? You would not be able to do that. <laughs> and by the way, I don't pay any of them for that work. <laughs> um, I'm sure that they find some way to generate revenue from this, and God bless them. Of course. Because, yeah, because it's work. It's labor. It should be compensated. Yeah, and, and that's what a librarian does. You know, when they do, a, if we if we go into a long discussion of metadata, I think people's eyes are going to roll. But <laughs> the importance of metadata in find in, in findability is, is so important. We pay a lot of attention to it at the New Books Network because it's finding the right thing, getting the right thing to the right audience, which is really the trick. And these aggregators, and I might even mention Amazon here because sometimes New Books Network hosts will will say, "How do I find new books in my field?" I said, "Well, you know, the Amazon." Books database is probably the largest book database in the world by a factor of 10, maybe more. And they have everything. And, and if you go there and look, you'll probably find it. And sure, Amazon's going to try to sell you the book. Fine, whatever. Yeah. 
But we, I mean, publishers use Amazon for research, you know, when we're looking for comparable titles or is something still in print, et cetera, et cetera. I'd say Amazon and WorldCat are my two two go-tos. Yeah. I remember the day when I used to go to Hollis. That was, that's Mm. the system at Harvard. This was in the uh 90s and it was really big and it was on the first one online because they have tons of cash and they could do all this. And, And then Amazon appeared and I'm like, I switched to Amazon because they have absolutely everything. Um, and, and you can really find pretty much anything there, but that's also true of your university library with its website. You know, it's true of WorldCats, true of the Library of Congress and all the people that build those. They are all aggregators. They make this stuff findable. And in a way, that's what the New Books Network does because we've dedicated ourselves to building a library of podcasts. So all of our podcasts are permanently available at the website. Right. And I just want to say, Marshall, that, you know, actually my husband and I were talking this morning about podcasts because I was talking about this interview and um, we don't... We don't have long commutes. Um, we and and we're both maybe uh, not. Um, well, I am a late adopter. I will say I've been a late adopter of most things all my life. So I'm kind of impressed that I'm sitting here doing this interview with you. <laughs> I guess <laughs> 20, 2020, 2020 uh, lit the fire underneath the late adopters. But um, but it is amazing to me and really really um, impressive how important podcasts are uh, in terms of, you know, in, in terms of the, the level of, of usage uh, and engagement with podcasts that I see among my colleagues, my friends, my family. I mean, I know you probably know the statistics because you, it's, you, it's your, that's your work. It's what you do. But New Books Network, especially in its podcast um multi various many and varied uh podcast programs dedicated to different disciplines um has really kept up also i mean you're part of the university press world you're you're a collaborator Um, that's the way i think of it too absolutely yeah (laughs) you're part of the humanities infrastructure that you know you're one of the strong parts of it yeah i mean nobody is more shocked than me because when I started the New Books Network, this is 15 years ago, it was more or less an experiment to see if people would listen to authors talk about their, well, let's just put a word on it, relatively obscure books. And it turns out they're really interesting. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and many other people are too. I mean, I don't, I, I know you've interviewed many of our authors, uh, but just this just strikes me as really funny. Um, well, we're about the same age. You you know who MC Hammer is. Of course. So Mr. Hammer has a very popular internet presence and he um he has interviewed several scholarly authors including the author of our book Venus Noir which is on um uh, black women and 19th century France. Uh he hosted a book launch party for Robin Mitchell on <laughs> on his, uh, on one of the online platforms. So, you know, it's so interesting, especially the past 18 months when, you know, reading has resurged, but the interest in scholarly books, in serious, trustworthy books, um, and we try to make ours as accessible as possible as do many publishers. It, 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 it's been an incredible year. Um, for yeah, all I, I, I agree with you completely. Our downloads, that is the number of people essentially that listen to our podcasts, have, have doubled year over year. I mean, we now do 2.7 million downloads a month. That's these amazing. these are about monographs. Yeah. I mean, monographs. And I, I mean, for those listeners that don't know what a monograph is, this is a relatively obscure book. I wrote some of them. And, uh, you know, when a monograph on Mongolian literature between the wars, which is my favorite example, gets downloaded 5,000 times, you think, who are these people? I don't know them, but they're out there. Yeah. Listen, people, I mean, I'm, you know, a first generation college graduate who went into scholarly publishing. My, I'm sure my, that like, you know, my family still doesn't completely understand what I do, but that what they do understand is, is good books and reading. And, um, 
you know, it's not obviously just people on the tenure track who are looking at the work that university presses do. It's curious people interested in, um, again, trustworthy knowledge. And that's what NBN is known for, delivering those incredible interviews that touch on the work that we're publishing. And I mean, and this is really a discovery. This is something we didn't know because 15 years ago, if you would have asked me, would people, would 5,000 people listen to an interview about Mongolian literature? I'd say probably not, but I was wrong. Um, and, you know, we do this, we publish between 12 and 15 interviews a day. And each of those is downloaded a few thousand times in the first few days. And, you know, these small audiences of people that are interested in this high quality material that's very narrow. I mean, you just can't really imagine the, the variety of interests in the world. I mean, they're incredible. And it's all over the world. We reach every country in the world except North Korea, and we're working on North Korea. Yeah, that's, North hey, Korea. you may be the key. You may be the key to opening North Korea. I mean, when I hear things like that, you know, and over the past eighteen months, even during the hardest and most horrible times, um, I, I've seen a lot of news about people looking for trusted, verifiable resources like the ones that we produce. Um, I mean, and not, we talked about, we mentioned platitudes earlier too, but it does make you feel like what you're doing is worth it, right? Because a oh, lot absolutely. of the, a lot oh, of the yeah. time oh. it's incredibly challenging and we're not doing this because we're um, interested in wealth or power. <laughs> laughing because yeah. I have neither wealth nor power. Right. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it is, it is about, um, it is about giving people hope through information and, um, you know, just engagement, I would say. Engagement is a good word because, you know, one of the things that happens on the NBN is we'll publish a interview with someone and then, uh, a bunch of people will listen to it. And then, um, listeners will contact me and say, well, I want to talk to the author. Believe yeah. me, the author wants to talk to you. Absolutely. <laughs> and so I say, yeah. well, here's their webpage. Yeah. Go talk to them. Yep. They would love to hear from you as a reader about mm-hmm. their relatively obscure book, which yeah. they spent 10 years on. <laughs> yeah. And which, and undoubtedly, there's some connection to what's happening right now. Yeah. Somehow in history, you know, uh, there, there's always a connection. And that's what I love about scholars, I mean, I've been doing university press publishing for 30 years, 30 years this year. Yeah. And um, I I have actually seen scholars in the academy come around to understanding how important it is to speak to, to be able to speak to the connections between perhaps the relatively obscure work they're doing and something that's happening today in our lives or a challenge that we're having or something that's happened in the recent past. Um, it's really, it, I mean, that is the beauty of this profession. Yeah. I mean, we leave it to the, we leave it to the listeners and the authors and the hosts to make these connections because, you know, our interviews are all about the book, but you know, they're like resources. You never know when you're going to need them. Like right now, Mongolian literature isn't important, but who's to say, in 10 years, it might be really important. Well, if you sit around, that's what distinguishes the work that we, and when I say we, I mean both of us do. You can't, I mean, you. yes, of course, I do try to anticipate what's an interesting subfield or, you know, what's an area that we ought to be exploring, or certainly our acquisitions editors do that. But you can't, you know, you can't always anticipate, and, and, and you just do the best work that you can. You, you, you manage your resources the best that you can. And, I mean, I think that it's not debatable. I will not debate that the body of work that university presses, the body of knowledge that we have built over decades and decades and centuries um, is unimportant. That is, that is not arguable. Yeah, it no, is that's incredibly, not a serious opinion. Yeah, no, it's, it's incredibly important. Yeah, and the thing about it is, is that, you know, some people say, well, this work is really obscure. Well, it's not really obscure for the people who care about it. <laughs> you know, I studied medieval Russian history. 
It wasn't obscure to me, man. Indeed. <laughs> I really wanted to know about that stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> and other people do too. And, you know, when you talk about 5,000 people, you know, 5,000 downloads, um, other people do too. And, um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 well, we're, we're, we're in complete agreement about all this. Uh, one of the things I did want to touch on, you mentioned it earlier, was the importance of peer review. And this is kind of your uh, differentia specifica. It's, it's a kind of, it's, it's part of your brand, if I can talk like a business person for a moment. Can you talk a little bit about peer review and what it is and how it works? Sure. So for books, um, for our scholarly books, well, and actually everything that we publish at Georgia, um, we find two, at least two, sometimes three or four outside experts in whatever the field is or the area and we send the manuscript to them for their expert opinion. What is working? What might need more work? Is this a contribution to the field? Uh, is, is it usable in classes with students? Who's the market? How do you see this fitting with current scholarship? Does it reflect current scholarship, etc.? cetera? Um, so that's peer review. It's anonymous. The author never knows who reviewed their books. Um, we pay our peer reviewers, not a lot. It is considered to be sort of part of service if you're in the academy, but we do compensate for it. And in every instance, the peer review process where, you know, we, you know, we have the author, we, we get re readers' reports, the author responds to them, revises the manuscript. Sometimes we go two or three cycles of that. Um, the manuscript is improved in every instance. And then we have uh, another part of our peer review at university presses is a faculty editorial board or an institutional editorial board. So we have 10 um, faculty members from across the university, interdisciplinary, um, who they don't read the manuscripts, but they review the peer review process for each project. We have meetings about every six weeks, and then they approve um, projects for publication. So it's, I would say it's quite difficult to be published by a university press because we, in that process, insists on the highest quality. There are several levels to to pass. But yeah, and jur journals, publishers, scholarly journals, publishers, of course, have their own peer review process as well. I, I was just reading a book uh, by, I think he's a lay historian. He's a writer on World War One, And at the beginning of the book, he did something that was just lovely. He thanked all of the scholars who essentially did all of the research that made him able to write this book. And I thought that is just a lovely gesture. Absolutely. Because he admitted, I did not go into the archives and wear, you know, fingerless gloves for six months in Lyon. Right, right, right. Eat baguettes and sleep on a, you know, a, yeah. a, an uncomfortable mattress. They did this for me. Well, I've been down a historical fiction rabbit hole uh, on both of the world wars, actually, so early uh, 20th century. And what I love about good historical fiction is that those novelists know that they are on the shoulders of the scholars who did the work. And I love reading the bibliographies or the source lists, you know, how geeky is that? But um, it just makes you feel very reassured that we actually have a yeah. channel on historical fiction Ooh. we do and oh. you know one of the reasons i started is because i knew somebody who wrote it and i had an i had I, I thought this woman is just amazing because it's it's you know it releases some of the constraints of scholarship but it rests on scholarship and you know as as professors and and, and academics we're not allowed to release those constraints but she can and it's very cool there, how she does it. There yeah. is, I mean, a good story, a, a narrative through line it, is a great delivery mechanism, right? Well, I'm going to subscribe. Okay, I'm yeah, going to. Books that, of historical maybe, fiction. Yes, I'm Carolyn in it. Pouncey. I'm in. Yeah, oh, no, she does, she does great work. Absolutely. I have great admiration for these people. I really do. I don't think yeah. I could do it, but no. it's good that somebody's doing it. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time. We've been talking for 43 minutes, and I never actually asked you the very first question that I said I was going to ask you, but let's go there now. Uh, and what I want to do is have a discussion of careers in scholarly publishing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into scholarly publishing? Yes, I can. I think about it often. Um, I got into scholarly publishing. As I said, I was a first-generation college student. I went to went to school at um, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, which is the southernmost part of Illinois, a public, you know, not the flagship, not the University of Illinois, but a regional public. And um, I thought I wanted to be an English teacher, so I did my undergraduate in education intending to teach literature because I loved literature. And then went to graduate school, also at SIU in English, and was pretty sure, you know, because first gen, I'm like, "Mm, I don't really know about getting a PhD. That's not anything that, you know, might be interesting to me. But I was walking down the hall one day and there was a bulletin board back in the day of bulletin boards. There was an announcement of a graduate uh, internship at the SIU press. Um, And, you know, so I was at an institution with a university press, thank goodness. And they said, you know, the flyer said, do you want to learn about book publishing? I'm like, wow, I, you know, I, I never thought about the process of publishing the profession of publishing. So I got the internship, which was really cool because it um, it was nine credit hours, two semesters. Um, so worked very well with my program. I copy, I, I was, I, I read the Chicago Manual of Style. I learned how to copy. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's which, quite a feat. Uh, which was a little, <laughs> made me a little sleepy some days. Um, I copy edited a manuscript. I was trained to copy edit and proofread. Um, went through every stage of a book becoming a book from copy editing, from acquisitions to copy editing to marketing. I did the marketing plan under the, under the tutelage of all of these professionals, um, designed a cover. They allowed these interns to design covers, which back in the day and the, um, and it, you know, so this was a year I got my degree, my master's, and I sent out 30 cold call letters in 1991. And one director called me, I will never forget, in my office at, you know, in the English department, called me, uh, and it was Sandy Thatcher, the legendary director of Penn State Press. Sandy Thatcher, yeah, he is a legend, yes. And (laughs) Sandy said, we are going to have an opening for an assistant in our marketing department because my internship had encompassed the entire process. I was claiming to have experience in <laughs> all of the departments. So, um, so I, um, drove to State College, Pennsylvania that summer and interviewed for the job. I had never been to Pennsylvania. I thought it I didn't realize State College was in the center of state. Anyway, I learned a lot about geography and Pennsylvania's big. Pennsylvania is huge. I learned a lot about, yes. I wish there had been podcasts then because I could have listened to New Books Network as I drove. But I got the job and I started as an assistant in the marketing department. Uh, in 1991, in August of 1991, and found that I really loved marketing because you got to learn a little bit about everything. If you're curious, um, and I'll quote Robert Silvers, the dear departed founding editor of the New York Review of Books, you must be curious about everything, then book marketing is for you. Because I, anyway, I was in marketing, so I'm going to jump fast forward. I was in marketing until 2012, and I've worked at five university presses, Penn State, and then I went back to SIU Press, my alma mater, and was marketing director there in the late 90s. And then I got married and we moved to Minneapolis, St. Paul, because after LA and after New York and LA, it was the third most, you know, uh, prolific publishing 
city and, and we wanted to live in a city. So I worked for Minnesota Historical Society Press, which was absolutely, I mean, I think that kind of underscored my love of publishing history. Um, and then I was at University of Illinois Press back in the state, my home state uh, as marketing director, and became director at the University of Georgia in 2012 and have loved every day of it. That's great. That's a great career. So uh, for those of our listeners that might be interested in a career in university press publishing or scholarly publishing, how do you go about starting one? I know that the AUP has resources for this, but maybe you can speak a little bit about it. Well, I think there are many ways to come in to university press publishing, but I, in my experience, the best way is to be an intern, uh, work at a press when you are in undergrad or graduate school, if you can. Um, you know, we're very, very invested in equity and representation. And I know that most university presses, if not all of them, are now uh, paying their interns because, again, you know, labor should be compensated. We we have fundraised here at UGA to pay all of our interns, and we host 10 to 12 a year, both undergrad and graduate, at from Georgia and other nearby universities and colleges. So if you can get some sort of on-the-job, in-the-trenches training to really kind of understand how it works, you know, and you don't you don't have to be an academic, although it helps because we are all nerdy, you know, we're working in that <laughs> world. Um, it really helps. I th and I think humanities degrees help. Frankly, this is one of the, I mean, English majors, um, this is one of your, our landing places, right? This is one of our homes. Um, so I think try to do an internship. If you can't do an internship, then uh, lurk at the AU Press's job site and look for an entry-level position. Um, you know, one of our new history editors did get a PhD, but that was not why we hired him. It was because he had done an internship um, in publishing while he was a graduate student. So that combination was pretty nice. I hope that answers your question. It does. And, you know, again, to resort to cliches, it's important to know how the sausage is made before you decide you want to make sausage. Yeah. And publishing is, I mean, saying I love books and I love reading, that might have been why I paused at that bulletin board 30 years ago. But really understanding that we are a business, we're a mission-driven business and understanding- That's what we are, a mission-driven yeah, business. And understanding the the professional you know, requirements. We are a profession. Um, so you have to get into the muck and figure I, out where your spot I don't is. Think, I actually got an email from a guy the other day who was asking me about marketing books and publishing. And I said, I, I, I can't even begin to tell you how complicated this is. I, I can't. I'm sorry. I, it would take me hours to explain to you how all these pieces fit together. You really kind of have to be in it in order to understand how it works. And it's amazing that it works at all. Yep. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Keep me up at night. <laughs> well, yeah. it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. Um, this has been a terrific conversation. Let me remind everybody that uh, University Press Week begins on November 9th. And November eighth. November eighth. Is it? It's number eight. Sorry about <laughs> that. Okay. I, I, I often joke that I became a historian uh, in remediation. I was. I was, <laughs> it was. It was remedial for me because I'm bad at dates. Uh, it, it begins on November eighth, and you can go to the AUP, the American. It used to be called the American Association. Now it's the Association of University Presses website, and learn all about keep up. Yes. Which is the which is the motto or slogan for this year. Let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Lisa Baer, uh, who is the president of the Association of University Presses and is the director of the University of Georgia Presses. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor of the New Books Network. Thanks everybody for listening and thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Marshall. Absolutely my pleasure.